Hey everyone, before we start the show today, I just wanted to tell you about one of the best damn podcasts in the social political slash philosophy slash historical genre. It's called Dangerous History with CJ Kilmer. This show does thorough deep dives into the topics that establishment media will not or cannot touch. With an unrelenting set of liberty-minded analytical tools, CJ exposes topics like the history of the US dollar, the imperial decline of Pax Americana, Woodrow Wilson's disastrous presidency, and a recent favorite of mine, wartime propaganda techniques. So check out Dangerous History wherever you get your podcasts and show Mr. Kilmer some love. Howdy everybody, CJ here. Welcome to another dose of Dangerous History. September 19th, 1959. Amidst the potentially extinction-level consequences of the Cold War, President Eisenhower invited Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to a conference at Camp David. It is said that he eagerly accepted the offer and intended to stay in the United States for a couple of weeks. And just as with any other tourist to America, the communist leader wanted to see the most emblematic sights the superpower had to offer. His wish list included the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C., Times Square in New York City, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and on a much more humble note, a steel mill in Pittsburgh and a corn farm in Iowa. But there was one extra stop he was especially excited about. Los Angeles, California. Khrushchev was told that he could eat lunch with Hollywood movie stars at 20th Century Fox, and even potentially watch the filming of a sexy dance sequence in the movie Can-Can, starring Shirley MacLaine and Frank Sinatra. And as Peter Carlson of HistoryNet.com writes, quote, Not all of Hollywood's stars could be accommodated at the Khrushchev lunch, so the head of 20th Century Fox had to pick which movie stars to invite. And their main priority, of course, was to get Marilyn Monroe. But Marilyn, she was blasé about the idea. End quote. And at first, Marilyn, who had never read the papers much, didn't seem to care about the event at all. However, the studio kept pushing the idea on her. They eventually told the blonde bombshell that, in Russia, America meant two things, Coca-Cola and Marilyn Monroe. She treasured hearing the idea of such a thing, and her iconic glowing smile lingered. And after soaking in some of the selfish love, she agreed to meet the dictator. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Murdering Marilyn Monroe, The Kennedy Conspiracy Theory, Part 2. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. When we last left off our crime saga, 
on the potential murder of Marilyn Monroe, we were confronted with a somewhat comedic historical anomaly. The meeting of the world's most beautiful and beloved American movie star with the planet's most homely and feared Russian totalitarian. And it's hilarious to imagine just how hard Monroe must have been trying to appear to be normal. Not only for the angle of representing her country, but also for Nikita's benefit. And if you are curious as to what I'm alluding to, take a moment and look up a picture of Khrushchev smiling for yourself. Now imagine that you are someone who has to meet this man and pretend to be flirtatious with him, or at least at a bare minimum, accept his flirtations willingly. And people say that Marilyn couldn't act. Additionally, as one would definitely expect for this extra special and odd occasion, there were cops and undercover government agents everywhere. Layers upon layers of security were issued, and the LAPD, with support from OKID, again, that's the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, were tasked with the California portion of Khrushchev's journey. Chief Parker even personally kiboshed a day trip planned to Disneyland for the Soviet leader, and said to his Russian entourage that he couldn't guarantee their safety in Orange County. Khrushchev's team reluctantly agreed about the security risk and cancelled their day plans to see Mickey Mouse. But it was to the great dismay of the Soviet leader, who is noted as asking aloud, quote, I was just told I cannot go to Disneyland. Why not? What is it? Is there an epidemic of cholera there? Do you have rocket launching pads? Have gangsters taken hold of the place? End quote. So to quickly redirect attention away from this reality, Marilyn was quickly ushered into his presence at the luncheon, and they shook hands. He noted that she was a very beautiful young lady and beamed his diastemic smile at her, all the while looking her up and down. Here are Marilyn's comments about the premiere and the gala event when asked later that day. From an entertainer's point of view, what did you think of the show today? It was a very interesting afternoon. What did you find most interesting? Nearly everything. What did you think of the ad-libs? Interesting. Hmm? Very interesting. Is this what you expected here today? What did you come expecting? Roast beef. <laughs> I expected it to be interesting. It is about this time that we find JFK preparing to launch his presidential bid in January of 1960. Author Seymour Hirsch of The Dark Side of Camelot fame said that he couldn't, nor could anyone else, get pictures or stories printed about JFK and Marilyn Monroe. For major newspaper editors knew what it would mean for their careers, their access to the White House, and even in the most cynical political sense, who they preferred to see in the Oval Office. And it definitely was not another four years of Republican government after two terms of Eisenhower and the looming threat of a Nixon presidency. Sensational as it would have been, JFK's affairs would be ignored by mainstream media. And Marilyn? Well, she happily embraced her secret affair with John, even going so far as to attend the 1960 Democratic National Convention to support her lover, despite still being married to Arthur Miller. Married in the legal sense only, as their relationship deteriorated rapidly in this time period. But as she wisely noted to herself at one point, quote, If you can make a woman laugh, you can make her do anything. And with JFK's charm, power, wit, smile, and frequent intoxication, 
it's hard to imagine that he bored Monroe out of her wits. So despite the various attempts by Kennedy's team to keep John away from Monroe, because of the seemingly obvious results from the two of them being proximate to one another, the attraction between them could not be deterred. Author Randy Terraborielli writes that, quote, One Kennedy relative recalled that what happened was that someone from the Kennedy campaign told Peter Lawford that JFK had been flirting with Marilyn. They wanted to nip it in the bud before something happened. Would he talk to Marilyn about it? Peter thought it was unfair to approach Marilyn Monroe with a warning since nothing had even occurred. Still, he decided to ask Pat to at least mention to her that there was concern about it. Pat called Marilyn and said, Look, I know this is ridiculous, but everyone is going nuts because they think my brother was flirting with you the other night. Do you think he was? Marilyn replied with, quote, Well, of course he was, and I was flirting back. But it meant nothing. It was just flirting. And as luck would have it, the Democratic National Convention to select the next presidential nominee was to be held in California. More specifically, the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Center was to be the venue, and the Biltmore Hotel was to be Kennedy headquarters while the festivities were in town. And naturally, Chief Parker was charged with providing a secure, safe, and clean environment for the political circus that would roll into the City of Angels. And though Parker would have normally looked to support Nixon, as their politics and worldviews more closely aligned, supporting the Kennedys in this round meant demonstrating loyalty. And whether this was shameless opportunism or dutifully upholding his marching orders from the highest of echelons, we can't really be sure. It is probably a safe bet to assume it was a mixture of both, though. Either way, his chances of the FBI directorship would be greatly bolstered if he could keep a lid on the media, provide a thoroughly cemented police presence, and to help the presumptive candidate with his sexual proclivities. During and amidst the four-day event, Marilyn was constantly floating around the Kennedy campaign. She was even tracked by Okid agents to Puccini's restaurant on South Beverly Drive. This was a lasagna joint owned by Sinatra and Lawford that just so happened to have a private room in the back. One that high-profile guests could use at their discretion without any questions from management. But back in front of the cameras, the 1960 DNC saw JFK become the first senator since 1920 to be nominated for the presidency. In his acceptance speech, he spoke about the American public's hesitancy about him because of his Roman Catholic faith, which to that point in time was a nearly unthinkable belief system for someone to be leading the U.S. with. But in his acceptance speech, he noted how he was, quote, fully aware of the fact that the Democratic Party, by nominating someone of his faith, has taken on what many regard to be a new and hazardous risk, end quote. He then went on to ironically clarify the situation. And considering what we now know about his affairs and substance use, in juxtaposition to his alleged faith, it might be fair to say that he was at least stretching the truth when he assured the audience that, quote, And you have, at the same time, placed your confidence in me and my ability to render a free, fair judgment and to reject any kind of religious pressure or obligation that might directly or indirectly interfere with my conduct of the presidency 
in the national interest, end quote. Not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. And much like the years to come, JFK and Marilyn were apparently in an on-again, off-again relationship that meant different things to both of them. For Marilyn, it was filling the love-shaped hole in her heart, possibly even in a Freudian sense, the father-shaped hole in her soul. She was deeply in love with John, and after his nomination to be the most powerful man in the world, it's likely her feelings grew even stronger. On JFK's side, though, it was much ado about nothing. There's no evidence to demonstrate that Marilyn was any more than a convenient and high-class hookup for him. But their relationship wasn't just a one-night stand. She and JFK allegedly had sex in numerous places. At no-tell motels on Sunset Boulevard, at Bing Crosby's mansion in Palm Springs, a couple of occasions at the Lawford's beachside house, and at the Kennedy family suite in the Carlisle Hotel in New York, and even, according to one source, at Hyannisport, which is the Kennedy family compound in Massachusetts, for those who are unaware. And regarding this location, it was later insisted by a former Boston newspaper photographer that in the early 1960s, Marilyn pulled into a convenience store parking lot in Cape Cod. She was there to pick up some cigarettes and snacks. She acknowledged the paparazzi in the parking lot and shouted, Hey boys and then asked them for directions to the Kennedy compound from there. On a darker note, things began to change later that year when in November of 1960, JFK won the presidency and declared that his brother, Bobby Kennedy, would be his attorney general. This is the top legal job in the whole of the United States. And as bombshell author Douglas Thompson notes, quote, Starting after the election of JFK in 1960, a conspiracy evolved to eliminate Marilyn was orchestrated from the highest levels of government. John changed the world, and it was the beginning of the end for Marilyn's time in it. With hindsight, she was an early victim of the brutal Hollywood culture that the Me Too movement exposed. She was also a victim of expediency." End quote. And unfortunately for Monroe, she was now inextricably linked to the Kennedys, not just by her heartstrings, but from their perspective, by risk exposure. A political vulnerability that would have been career-ending in the relatively prudish and moralistic early 1960s. Marilyn would have been wise to accept her own words of wisdom when she is known to have stated that, quote, 
A wise girl kisses but doesn't love, listens but doesn't believe, and leaves before she's left. She would then go on, in quite ironic fashion, to divorce Arthur Miller on the exact occasion of JFK's inauguration to the presidency, January 20th, 1961. Symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. So let's do a quick recap of where all of our characters are standing at the moment. Marilyn and Arthur Miller are divorced. Chief Parker is feeling a big promotion coming down the pike. Sinatra is in talks with his mafia friends to buy a casino. Bobby Kennedy is controversially preparing for his new role as Attorney General. Peter Lawford was enjoying his booming stardom after the release of Exodus. And JFK's sexual encounters with Monroe are getting riskier by the hookup. But after winning the presidency of the United States, the Kennedy clan became increasingly concerned with Maryland's silence. Having an affair with a senator was one thing, but the infidelity of a president was another animal altogether. I mean, just ask Bill Clinton 36 years later when it was still an unbelievable scandal worthy of impeachment. And again, constantly at the margins of this story, it gave J. Edgar Hoover all the more reason to increase surveillance of his high-profile targets and began going over Okid's head by contracting out individual officers within the LAPD. And we will get into this more later. But the yarns on our detective board are beginning to resemble a dense cobweb. Robert Kennedy and Okid were watching the mob. The mob were keeping tabs on Sinatra and the Kennedys. Sinatra and the Teamsters were watching the Kennedys, Okid was gathering intelligence on celebrities for the FBI, and the feds of the Secret Service and CIA were watching everybody. And the feds were often hiring their own assets, like the soon-to-be-introduced private detective Fred Otash, who is selling information to all the aforementioned parties. And all of these domestically-focused cat-and-mouse power games were being played amongst an international and existential zero-sum battle between the two reigning national superpowers of the world. And if that wasn't enough for everyone, there was the ever-present threat of thermonuclear war mixed in with Red Scare 2.0 that was being waged by the McCarthyites. There was also the seedling sprouts of a religious revival movement known as the Fourth Great Awakening, and of course, the burgeoning civil rights movement in the segregated southern United States. 
So this is to say that the moralists and the purists were everywhere and on both sides of each conflict. So there weren't a lot of gray areas to occupy. Capitalism or communism? Christian or atheist? Democracy or dictatorship? Black or white? And ultimately, good or evil? Even with Marilyn herself, she was a polarizing figure. Like her biographer, Randy Terraborelli says, quote, For some, she represents the absolute standard of female sensuality, beauty, grace, sophistication. But for others, Marilyn Monroe means insecurity, misery, and tragedy. Her fans, who admire her without reservation, can be moved to tears by the memory of her haunting performances. To them, she is to be adored and placed on a high pedestal, preferably in a pose befitting her cinematic royalty. Yet to others, she was merely a spoiled Hollywood celebrity, and her life is a cautionary tale on the dangers of superstardom, so she should be pitied as much as she was loved. End quote. Regardless of the view you take, she was still the queen of Hollywood, but she was starting to battle some mental health and addiction issues behind closed doors. Her pill usage was increasing, her alcohol intake constant, and her therapy sessions quite frequent. These issues would start to make themselves apparent as she pressed forward in her acting career and became increasingly difficult to work alongside. She was never on time, sometimes making entire film crews wait eight hours before she arrived on set. And further exacerbating her lateness was her acting coaches that would often make her redo her lines to the opposition of the director. And because of her constant problems, the budget of the film she starred in would balloon to astronomical proportions. And by this, I mean in the millions of extra costs and delays. But on the flip side, having a Monroe picture was one of the surest bets a project would make money. So while she may have cost several pictures untold millions in production costs, once released, her star power would make the studio tens of millions in return, which, when you consider all things, could be considered a fair trade-off in the end. A major contributing factor to her problems on set was that she was constantly preoccupied with the idea that she would suffer mental health ailments like her mother. She was constantly institutionalized and was in and out of mental health clinics her entire life even to the point of having to give Marilyn up for adoption at a very young age. So the duration of Monroe's life would be marked by a fear of mental decline and an escalating tendency towards self-harm in the forms of substance abuse and an alleged suicide attempt. For as she once eerily stated, quote, Yes, there was something special about me, and I knew what it was. I was the kind of girl they found dead in a hall bedroom with an empty bottle of sleeping pills in her hand. But things were not entirely black. Not yet, at least. When you're young and healthy, you can plan on Monday to commit suicide, and by Tuesday you're laughing again. And her co-workers found it hard to disagree with this sentiment. Her director on the Misfits Project, John Houston, would later say in hindsight that he was, quote, 
absolutely certain that she was doomed and that there was evidence right before me on set almost every day. She was incapable of rescuing herself or of being rescued by anyone else. And it sometimes affected her work. We had to stop the picture while she was sent to the hospital for weeks at a time. End quote. But she always just managed to pull it together just enough to finish the films and keep her desirability a valued commodity. And back on the Hollywood front of our story, as we previously alluded to, Sinatra took over ownership of the Cal Neva Lodge and Casino on the California-Nevada border. It was a gimmick establishment because it was located on the border between the two states. And it was also co-owned by Dean Martin and gangster Paul Skinny D'Amato. This criminal was also a Kennedy connection because, along with his lawyer, Angelo Malandera, they raised dark money to fund JFK's bid in the West Virginia primaries. And later in the general election, it may well have helped put him over the top in the state. So while JFK was being sworn into the presidency, and post-production was being done for Monroe's soon-to-be-released cult classic film The Misfits, Marilyn was becoming somewhat erratic. So Sinatra invited the whole cast of The Misfits to his newly acquired playground in an attempt to calm Marilyn down and shut her up. For the good of his mob friends, for the budding JFK presidency, of whom he was asked by brother-in-law Peter Lawford to assist in regards to Monroe, and for the benefit of her own career. And I do have to stop here momentarily for my own personal reasons of fandom. I'd like to take a moment and give a shout out to how Monroe's final movie would eventually spawn one of my favorite bands of all time. And I would be remiss with myself if I didn't take a second to acknowledge the definitive horror punk band of all time. So without going off on too far a tangent, I am of course referring to the New Jersey band The Misfits. Formed in 1977 under singer Glenn Danzig, they based their namesake on Monroe's final and very dark film. The Misfits, the band that is, overwhelmingly use horror movie and science fiction film inspired themes and imagery to convey their sharp, fast, and hard style. Columnist Mickey McStarkey of Far Out Magazine writes that the Misfits were, quote, before Slipknot, before Marilyn Manson, and even before Gigi Allen, there were the Misfits. Almost single-handedly, they established the horror punk genre, and along with bands such as The Damned, The Cramps, and TSOL, they paved the way for a blistering musical style, and more significantly, a stark aesthetic that worked to augment their musical content. They showed that music didn't have to just be music. It could be so much more. This parallel nature of their sound and artistic vision marked them out from the majority of their peers. And in terms of aesthetic, they were further than the damned and the cramps. And many would argue that their music was too. For without the band's pioneering steps, many more modern shock rockers would not have had a platform to operate on. We could wave goodbye to Slipknot and even to the entire Norwegian black metal scene as a whole. The music of the Misfits was not straight up and down punk. They took the punk formula and by mixing in their own personalities and creative vision, invented something new, something visceral, and something that many have tried and failed to imitate. They weren't the first band to adopt onstage personas and costumes, but the way that they did it has cemented them as a truly iconic act." End quote. 
So along with their elaborate makeup, clothing, and devil-lock haircuts, they largely drew their lyrics from B-movies and television serials, ones that predominantly ran from the 1950s to 70s. And they are credited with being the creators of the horror-punk and psychobilly subgenres. These fused a unique array of punk rock, metal, and 1950s rockabilly to define their musical style. Rolling Stone magazine has described them as the archetypal horror-punk band, and they are largely considered icons in punk music and culture. If you are a fan of metal, punk, alt-rock, grunge, or hard rock, then you almost certainly like a handful of misfit songs. And two songs of theirs stand out in particular for our purposes in this podcast. Firstly is their song, Who Killed Marilyn, from 1985 where Danzig sings, and I'm paraphrasing using the lyrics to some degree here, quote, 525 August 5th, 1962, found her lying on her chest, her face all turning blue. You think it was an overdose, but it could have been the pact. Could it have been the Kennedys, or was it LAPD? Make it seem a suicide, make it seem a suicide, it ain't a mystery. Make it seem a suicide, baby not to me, baby not to me. What a, what a, what a mystery. Baby, it ain't a mystery. End quote. And another song the Misfits created that greatly overlaps and supplements our story is a song called Bullet that was released in 1978. This one revolves around the assassination of President Kennedy and how an opportunistic Jackie O slid from man to man to get what she wanted. Essentially, the most successful gold digger of all time. Again, frontman Glenn Danzig, who weighs zero time in starting off the track, instantaneously blares at us, quote, President's bullet-ridden body in the street, ride Johnny ride. Kennedy's shattered head hits the concrete, ride Johnny ride. Johnny's wife is floundering, Johnny's wife is scared, run Jackie run. Texas is an outrage when your husband is dead, Texas is an outrage when they pick up his head, Texas is the reason that the president's dead, end quote. So if you like horror movies, science fiction, punk rock, and 1950s pop culture, then check out the Misfits music catalog that is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and it will be listed in the show notes. Hey everyone, we're going to take a well-timed break from this episode so I can tell you about some parallel content you should check out. First and foremost, I want to recommend a podcast that I recently stumbled upon called The Wheel of Horror. This is a weekly horror movie podcast hosted by two lifelong friends, Alec Lawless and Eric Masaryk, wherein they watch and then analyze horror and horror-adjacent films. And I have to say that not only are they insightful and funny, but distracting as well. And I mean this in the best possible sense regarding their content. With all the heaviness in the world right now with viruses, war, political infighting, etc., etc., it's so refreshing and fun to just listen to a couple of great dudes talk about Anaconda, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Curse of Chucky, or Scream. Their catalog of content features over 200 episodes and are about 30 minutes each. So again, if you want to have a laugh and revisit some of the horror movies from days past, check out the Wheel of Horror podcast and download it wherever you get your shows. And separately from this... I wanted to share with you a controversial new scum rock band headed by Chris Vicious called Sex Objects. Influenced by Gigi Allen, Iggy Pop, and The Germs, 
They are playing shows in and around the southern United States in their abrasive and unabashed style. The song you're hearing in the background, it's called Mark Kilroy. And it tells the story of a man who was abducted during a trip in Mexico, only to be tortured and dismembered by his captors. Again, the band is called Sex Objects and can be found on YouTube. Returning back to our Marilyn Monroe saga, we find ourselves back at the point where the cost-benefit analysis to the Kennedys was beginning to get dicey. And by this, I mean their affairs with Marilyn Monroe. Bombshell author Douglas Thompson explains how, quote, it was one thing to have an affair with a senator, an affair with a presidential contender, quite another. Bobby Kennedy advised his brother to end the affair, but JFK dithered. Marilyn, who took no comfort in the fact that they could have sex, and that it had to be a secret, turned to the pill bottle to soak up the hurt. She thought that this was a love affair. End quote. It could have been this, combined with her residual feelings to Arthur Miller, the near implosion of the Misfits movie project, and the JFK string-along that led Marilyn to nearly overdose. She battled depression during this time, and would have her stomach pumped of barbiturates at the West Side Hospital in LA in the summer of 1960. Meanwhile, JFK was having his own health battles with Addison's disease. This is a rare long-term endocrine disorder characterized by inadequate production of hormones that eventually causes adrenal failure. Symptoms generally come on slowly and insidiously and they may include abdominal pain and gastrointestinal abnormalities, some weakness, and possibly weight loss. Within certain people and under certain circumstances, an adrenal crisis may occur with low blood pressure, vomiting, lower back pain, and a loss of consciousness. These realities led JFK's doctors to prescribe him copious amounts of pills that he would take frequently to dull his symptoms. These included codeine, methadone, barbiturates, gamma globulin, cortisone, testosterone, and procaine injections. Marilyn was herself deeply familiar with some of these drugs as she spiraled further into her own prescription pill habit, which by all accounts was nearly impossible to stop her from pursuing, both because of the rationale and the logistics. Because being who she was, and by this I mean beautiful, famous, and rich, it wasn't hard for her to procure her habits regardless of how damaging they would be to her future. And for a little context, we first need to understand that at the time, prescription pills were seen as tiny miracles that could cure whatever problem you had. They had the blessing of the medical community, and so if dispensed professionally, no one saw it as drug abuse. Rather, it was fixing a medical problem with pharmaceuticals. And Marilyn believed this like a religious conviction. So in the off chance there was a doctor who refused her medication, on ethical grounds perhaps, she could simply drive down the block and try the next clinic. I mean, can you seriously imagine many doctors refusing to help Marilyn Monroe? especially when she had cash in hand and could weaponize her sexuality instantaneously? And regarding John Kennedy's health problems, 
Marilyn did her best to accommodate his desires while being mindful of his physical limitations. Indeed, Officer Rothmiller recalled a scrap of her infamous diary, at one point stating that, quote, I think I made his back feel better. And in this vein, we can learn a little factoid about 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. As is likewise rumored about Monroe, JFK's medical problems likely explained why he was said to have so many sexual trysts in the White House swimming pool. This was probably an occasional necessity because of his Addison's disease and the water's buoyancy properties in helping alleviate his back pains. And a quick side note to this is that upon taking office in 1970, Nixon had the pool filled in and had it made into a TV briefing room and one can only imagine his rationale for doing this. But as their almost purely sexual relationship continued, Marilyn was beginning to regress to a more emotionally immature time from her past. One from the time of the casting coaches in Old Hollywood. These were arrangements she made thorough use of to get where she was in the star rankings of LA's movie industry. She was allegedly asked by Marlon Brando what the best part about fame was, and her reply was, quote, I'll never have to sock another cock again. But as Officer Rothmiller would later read in her diary fragments among the OKID files, this was the sex act that JFK demanded the most from Marilyn, saying that, quote, He always wants me to blow him. Unfortunately for Monroe, her time freewheeling around Hollywood would be abruptly paused by her new physician, Dr. Chris. After she informed him on her brief fantasy about jumping off a balcony, he tricked her into visiting a sanatorium where she would be committed for being mentally unwell and a danger to herself. Maryland biographer Randy Terraborielli explains that, quote, After her divorce from Arthur Miller, Marilyn began once again to sink deeper into the deepest of depressions, some of which were so bottomless it seemed to those who knew her and loved her that there was simply no reaching her. Clearly, she wasn't eating much, and by the beginning of 1961, she looked gaunt and sickly. During a session, Marilyn relayed to Dr. Chris the same chilling story she had told Ralph Roberts about her near-suicidal leap. Obviously, it piqued the doctor's concern. After all, sitting before Dr. Chris was an important patient she had been trusting to follow her orders when it came to proper drug dosage and frequency. Chris was well aware that if Marilyn had genuine interest in killing herself, she could easily do so with the pills that she already had in her possession. She wouldn't have to leap out of a window to get the job done. There was no question about it. The doctor needed to take action. Dr. Chris suggested to Marilyn that she check into a private ward at New York Hospital for some rest and relaxation under medical supervision. Reluctantly, Marilyn agreed. Therefore, on Sunday, February 5th, Dr. Chris drove her to Cornell University, New York Hospital. Marilyn checked in using the pseudonym Faye Miller in order to keep her presence there unknown. However, when it came time to take her to her room, she was mysteriously escorted to another clinic on the expansive premises. From the moment that Marilyn entered this strange new wing, it was obvious to her that there was something very different about it. She had been to hospitals over the years, and none of them were quite like this. Her journey deeper into the ward involved passage through numerous steel doors, most of which required a key from both sides. 
Suddenly it all became clear, and fear swept through her at the realization that those doors were meant to keep people in, not to keep people out. How had it come to this? Had she gone completely mad and didn't realize it? Was she destined to spend her last days in an asylum, just like her grandparents? And maybe her mother too? Though Marilyn Monroe screamed for someone to come and rescue and release her, it was useless. Finally, she broke down into a racking sob, feeling more than ever that all hope was lost. Then she began to repeatedly bang her fists against the hard metal door, until finally both were battered and bruised. At last, two nurses entered her cell, their eyes blazing. If she persisted, they warned her, she would be placed into a straitjacket. They then stripped her of her clothing and forced her into a hospital gown. Their angry work done, they took their leave, but not before turning off the light, leaving their stunned patient in total blackness, with her confused thoughts and desperate fears, and without her medication. After considering the circumstances, she knew what she would do. She would try to make the biggest noise she could in the hope that someone new would be summoned, someone who might actually take pity on her and help her. To that end, she picked up a chair, and with everything she had in her, she hurled it against the glass on the bathroom floor. It didn't break. She picked up the chair and hurled it across the door, again and again, until finally, the double-thick glass cracked. She then reached out and carefully extracted a small, sharp sliver from the cracked window. Because she had made such a racket, an entire team of doctors and nurses burst into her room, and there she sat before them on the bed, holding the jagged glass to her wrist. If you don't let me out of here, I'll slit my wrists. After she was restrained and the glass taken away from her, through her tears, Marilyn told the intern that she had been betrayed by her psychiatrist and admitted to this mental hospital even though she didn't belong there. Why are you so happy, he asked her, ignoring what she had just told him. Marilyn looked at him squarely and answered, quote, I've been paying the best doctors a fortune to find out the answer to that question. And you're asking me? After speaking to Marilyn for a while longer, the doctor studied her face carefully, and as if making a profound statement, said with great authority, he told her, You are a very, very sick girl, and you've been sick for a very long time. End quote. And after this stint in what amounts to a medical prison, Monroe then simultaneously dated both DiMaggio and Sinatra, the former helping her get out of the sanatorium. Marilyn managed to get a hold of him by telephone, and after her pleas for help, he bolted down to the hospital immediately, where he then threatened the concierge that he would take apart the building brick by brick if they did not let her go. So after escaping that situation, she probably went to Joe and Frank out of comfort and security as they were both strong, powerful men who no doubt represented sanity, stability, and safety for her. Indeed, Milt Ebbins, who was a close friend of Sinatra and the VP for Lawford's production company, said that, quote, By 1961, Frank Sinatra's feelings about her were more protective than passionate. I remember that there was an incident involving President Kennedy, who was just in office at the time. Peter and I arranged a luncheon for Kennedy and Frank was invited. And we had a special chef flown in from New York to cook fettuccine Alfredo, 
veal piccata, and a salad and ice cream at the end. Sinatra's secretary called at the last minute and said that he couldn't make it. He had had a cold, and I was astonished. I mean, this is JFK after all. He can't stand up JFK, the president of all people. I knew Frank loved that guy. He had campaigned for him. He'd organized his inaugural entertainment, and so it seemed strange. I found out later on that what happened was that Marilyn was staying with him for a few days on the weekend, and she had left the house without telling him where she was going. He was frantic with worry, so he spent the day driving around Hollywood trying to find her, and he did. She was out shopping, so that shows you just how much he cared for her. If he was willing to miss a luncheon with the president so that he could figure out what the hell happened to Marilyn. End quote. So, taking a step back and looking at our detective crime board, we notice that Sinatra is acting as a father figure while having intimate relations with Marilyn, who she's also seeing Joe DiMaggio on the side, as well as occasionally visiting JFK in the White House. And as if there weren't enough pieces of thread connecting all these various characters, along with Marilyn, JFK was also striking up relationships with the mob and specifically Judith Exner, who herself was having a romantic relationship with Mafia chief Sam Giancana. Officer Rothmiller notes how JFK, quote, Having made or bought the friendship of mobsters like Sam Giancana and Johnny Rosselli, the Kennedys seem to have acquired quite a taste for the quick fix of murder. How closely this was related to their simultaneous pursuit of sexual thrills and cheap glamour is good material for speculation. And that there was some connection is hard to doubt. Kennedy's best documented affair was with Judith Campbell Exner, who is simultaneously entwined with Mafia chief Sam Giancana who was himself involved in the attempts to murder Fidel Castro. Ben Bradley has told us of his horrified astonishment at finding that Miss Exner knew all of the secret telephone numbers for contacting the president out of hours. And of course, Bradley's status as a locker room buddy of John Kennedy did nothing to dull the later rage of Nixonites when they found themselves invigilated by the Washington Post. End quote. So, all the while, Marilyn is becoming romantically involved with Sinatra, DiMaggio, and Kennedy. She is also losing a grip on her mental health while the drugs were catching up to her. It is alleged that when Patricia Lawford, wife of Peter Lawford, warned Marilyn about her intoxication and her manner when inebriated, and how unbecoming it really was, Monroe gave her an illuminating answer. Quote, it's the only way I can keep the voices in my head from becoming too loud. And at this point, we will have to sidestep to admit a new face to our cast of characters. Because of the role he will eventually play in revealing evidence to J. Edgar Hoover, and much later in his life, to Officer Rothmiller. The man in question is former cop, private investigator, and Hollywood fixer, Fred Otash. The following is his obituary that has been pulled from the LA Times of October 8, 1992. Quote, Aside from Peter Lawford and other Kennedy family members, Otash's clients included entertainers Frank Sinatra, Errol Flynn, Edward G. Robinson, Judy Garland, Lana Turner, Betty Davis, and well-known lawyers such as F. Lee Bailey, Jerry Geisler, Melvin Belly, and both 
major political parties. Otash prowled Hollywood by night in a chauffeured Cadillac full of women he called Little Sweeties. And much like a fictional private eye conjured by Raymond Chandler, he drank a quart of scotch and smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. When Otash worked on the wrong side of the law, his career as a detective ended. In 1959, he was convicted of conspiracy to dope a horse at the Santa Anita racetrack. The felony conviction was later downgraded to a misdemeanor and eventually expunged from his record, and he only served a suspended sentence. But his license was suspended by the California Department of Professional and Vocational Standards. Otash, who had come so far from the rough-edged poverty of his youth in Massachusetts when he was thrown out of high school for fighting, returned to the East Coast. He practiced for a year as a private investigator in New York and eventually wrote his first book, Hollywood Confidential. Otash later became head of security for the Hazel Bishop Company and its subsidiary, Lily Dash. The company moved him to Miami and he told the Times he was happy to have nothing more to do with adultery, child neglect, prostitution, and all those awful things. And he rounded out his life by managing the Hollywood Palladium in the 1970s and 80s. End quote. And at the margins at this point in our timeline, P.I. Otash had been surveilling Marilyn and her lovers on and off since 1954. But during a late night in November of 1961, John Kennedy attended a fundraiser in Los Angeles and spent the night at the Lawford Estate. It was later reported, and yes, I will fully explain the exposition in detail later on, to Officer Rothmiller that Otash had the house wired for audio. He was quoted as saying of that night, quote, Yes, I did hear on tape Jack Kennedy fucking Marilyn Monroe, but I don't want to get into the moans and groans of their relationship, end quote. And at that particular time, Otash was hired by Jimmy Hoffa to dig up dirt on the Kennedys while also simultaneously being contracted by the CIA and OKID. He received some very generous cash retainers to obtain and share some nasty and irrefutable proof of Bobby or John Kennedy's affairs. This was a means to gain leverage with their opponents, possibly even to hold career-ending photographic evidence against the Kennedys. And during this time, Marilyn was spiraling into an abyss of pills and constant self-imposed duress about her mental state. Biographer Tara Borelli notes that, quote, she would constantly ruminate over her sad childhood, her troubled relationship with her mother, her arranged marriage to Jim Doherty, the nightmare of Joe DiMaggio, and anything else that could be dredged up from her past, end quote. But Marilyn was especially worried throughout her life that she would suffer the same cognitive handicaps that were inflicted upon her mother a mother of whom she had been trying to support, love, and stay in contact with, despite her anger, delusions, and religious fixations. So by this point, Monroe had no meaningful, intimate relationships, very few actual friends, a problematic pill habit, and a growing sense of self-loathing and doubt. 
and one of the biggest parts of her troubles at this point revolved around love. As author Douglas Thompson writes, quote, Marilyn was constantly grasping for a chance at real love. She didn't appear to be able to hold on to any physical or spiritual intimacy for very long though. She lived her emotional life through others and wanted to hide herself in them. She didn't seem to have been able to live as her authentic self. She needed a host." End quote. And this is the spot where we can analyze that she was not actually Marilyn Monroe. She was Norma Jean Baker. Marilyn Monroe was a persona that she invented as a means to get where she wanted in her career. For it seemed that Norma Jean was the hurt little girl in constant need of a father figure, while Marilyn Monroe was the uber-confident Hollywood movie star that could tackle anything that got in her way. But what was the extent to which she delineated these things within her mind, or compartmentalized the different facets of her personality? This will never be properly known, even to those who were intimately close with her. So it was around this time in 1961 that her physician, Dr. Engelberg, and her psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson, balanced her psychoanalysis alongside pricey cocktails of hypodermic injections. It is also around this delicate time that is it alleged she began to see Bobby Kennedy, another frequent visitor to the Lawford residence at which she often partook in the partying. RFK was again following in the footsteps of his older brother John with the affair, much like he did with the senatorial roles, his sexual affairs, and eventually, his assassination. And for Dr. Greenson, Marilyn was his top priority, and it is alleged that they also became sexually intimate. And at the end of 1961, Greenson started to become the center of Monroe's entire existence. In a chapter entitled, Dr. Greenson in Control, Tara Borelli states that, quote, those few in Marilyn's circle who did not know about her diagnoses attributed her change in behavior and demeanor to the constant therapy she was receiving from Dr. Greenson. She was with this man almost every day, and then at night she would often have dinner with the Greenson family, and sometimes she would even stay overnight. Doubtless, the biggest problem Dr. Greenson faced was the damage he did to his image with certain aspects of his advice and behavior. Some of what he did was strange, it was suspicious, and it did not put the doctor in a very good light. An example of Greenson's seemingly territorial nature where Marilyn was concerned can be found in a letter he wrote to a colleague in May 1961. Above all, I tried to help her not to be so lonely, and therefore to escape into drugs or get involved with very destructive people who will engage in some sort of sadomasochistic relationship with her. This is the kind of planning you do with an adolescent girl who needs guidance, friendliness, and firmness. And she seems to take it all very well. She said for the first time, she looked forward to coming to Los Angeles because she could speak to me. Of course, this does not prevent her from counseling several hours to go to Palm Springs with Frank Sinatra. She is as unfaithful to me as she is to a parent. And it seems true that Marilyn had felt inclined to explain her romantic experiences to Greenson as if he had a right to sanction them. For instance, in March of 61, she wrote a letter to him in which she described a fling on a wing with someone she did not name. She said he was unselfish in bed, 
but that he knew Greenson would not approve of the relationship. Many reporters over the years have suggested that she was referring to one of the Kennedy brothers. End quote. And we, at this point, will admit another late-arriving but crucial character to our story, and it's the emergence of housekeeper Eunice Murray, who may well have been involved in the cover-up on the night of Marilyn's death. She was a 59-year-old housekeeper whom Dr. Greenson insisted replace her confidant, Ralph Roberts, around the house. By all accounts, she was a thoroughly plain and unimpressive woman, who had next to no personality and called herself a nurse. And this was despite the absence of even basic medical training. And it seems as though Murray's alleged housekeeping role was really of secondary importance to her primary job, Dr. Greenson's Eye of Sauron. Anytime Marilyn did anything, she would report it back to Greenson. It got to the point where Marilyn couldn't even have guests over without her doctor and Eunice approving beforehand. It is even alleged by Officer Rothmiller that Murray was not only feeding information to the FBI, but that she and Dr. Greenson almost certainly were gotten to by the Kennedys following her untimely death only eight months from this period. And now we enter the final year of our story, 1962. It would be the year that Marilyn Monroe would lose her life. Starting in the new year, and at the urging of her dear friend and essentially sister figure Patricia Lawford, Marilyn was urged to become more involved with a man she already heard of, but had little contact with. Certainly not the kind of contact that would have evolved throughout her final descent of 1962. The man that would be one of the last, and perhaps the last person, to see her alive, Robert F. Kennedy. In part three of the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast series on the murder of Marilyn Monroe, we will dive deeper into Marilyn's final months of life, her budding relationship with RFK, and everything leading up to that final day that she was alive on Earth, August 4th, 1962. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, 
and falls under the umbrella of Zinc Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.